In the name of one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The letter to the Colossians is a short letter in the New Testament, perhaps written by Paul, most likely not, to one of the most obscure towns that we find in the Bible, what is now part and parcel to modern Turkey, spanning what becomes four chapters. If you're a good Bible scholar out there, you know there's no such thing as chapters and paragraphs and sentences, but four chapters. It brings us to a deeper knowledge of the risen Jesus and what Jesus means for our lives. Jesus, the one who is the flesh and blood image of God. Jesus, through whom all things are made. Jesus, the connective tissue of the universe. Jesus, the man born into a world that was caught in a cycle of poverty and violence and oppression like us, grieved the continual distortion of God's goodness. Jesus, who was faithful to God even to the death on a cross, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, whose grace is more than enough to set us free from every bond and bless us forever. Now, in chapter 3, we come to a turn, and in every epistle there is a turn that helps us to work out the basics of God's good news message. And there is a central question at some point the authors all ask. It's generally the same question. So what? So what? What what does that mean for our lives? Well, this letter is written by a pastor. Never mind the identity, it doesn't matter written by a pastor who is in this pastor's capacity trying to work out the implications of the gospel for those who hear the letter. And the author is trying to answer the question for the reader, so what? You know, I often accuse the church of being irrelevant, of pronouncing pious platitudes and painting grand visions that have absolutely no relevance to the daily struggles of ordinary people and the real problems of our society and our world. And as a preacher, I often stand guilty of the accusation, and at the times that this describes me, I expect you to tell me. Because none of that irrelevance, pious platitudes, none of that speaks to the truth of the gospel. It is not true of the good news proclaimed today, and it's not true to the word that we read each week together as we gather. This is a word with profound implications for our lives. And today, the author of the letter to those who are living in Colossia points a finger directly at us. The author today seems to be saying to me, just be yourselves. Just be yourselves. Be the people who God has created you to be. Just be yourself. How many times I have been told by my mom, by my brother, a friend, a teacher, a coach, a bishop, a spouse, myself, in a sweeping gesture to help me to believe my anxieties truly will not eat me alive. Just be yourself. You'll do fine. You've worked hard. Be yourself. 
When I've been walking into a job interview, to a pastoral call where I am anxious, sometimes that has helped me. Just be yourself. God called you. It's all good. Be yourself. And sometimes that has grounded me. Sometimes it has given me a confidence and really helped me to calm my nerves. But at some point, at least for me, that advice has become very problematic. Because I think to myself, self, I'm supposed to be myself, but that assumes I know who I am. How can I be myself if I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be to begin with? I mean, what makes me, me? What makes you, you? What makes us, us? I mean, we're to be the beloved of God, right? All of us. Really? All of us. All of us are to be. So what does that mean anyway? I am endlessly fascinated with what makes people tick. Who makes me, me, and who makes you, you? Well, what does make us, us? You know, the author of this letter has his own take on who you are and who I am. What makes us, us? He begins chapter 3 saying, Therefore, if you were raised with Christ, raised with Christ, and then one sentence later he basically writes, You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God died and raised, hidden in Christ. And that is how the author defines us. So he spent two chapters describing Jesus who died and was raised to new life and new creation. And now he wants to take that template of dying and rising, of new and eternal life, and say, that's who you are. That's who all of us are died and raised. Well, the death of Christ reveals our own dying ways, doesn't it? The ways that we use one another and we hurt one another with greed, with violence, with oppression, with hatred, with bitterness, often with simple apathy or indifference. The death of Christ reveals the way we are unloving toward another, the ways we are unfaithful to God and destructive of ourselves. In the death of Christ, we have died because Christ has revealed our dying ways. But in the resurrection of Christ, we have been raised. The resurrection of Christ reveals the ways we can live, the ways we can thrive with one another through service and sacrifice, through generosity and compassion, Christ reveals that we actually can flourish. And most especially, Christ gives us the model of forgiveness. He reveals how we can live. The risen life of Christ puts into the world a new possibility, a possibility for living instead of dying, a possibility of thriving and growing instead of withering. The possibility is there because you have been raised with Christ and that risen life lives in you, right now, right here, in all of us. 
Winston Churchill once said of Russia that it was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, that sounds about right for what keeps me awake at night. Not Russia, but myself. We are riddles. We are wrapped in mystery inside an enigma. And we are a mystery that is still being revealed. The mystery of us is still being revealed because Christ is still being revealed in us. We are not static beings. We are dynamic becomings. We are changing, ever being given the opportunity to grow into an image of the one who created us. So the author of this letter turns the crystal of the writing and shifts the context from who are you to Who are you becoming? How is the love and grace of Christ working to bring out the you who is hidden in God? What habits and practices are being put away because they just don't fit this new you? What new practices and new habits are you discovering that fit the you that you are becoming? Well, you know, here in just a few lines, the author identifies the habits and practices that just don't fit the us that God wants us to become. Moral corruption, lust and greed, treating people like objects that can be used for our own gain. This is not who we are. The beings that are hidden in God. Malice and slander, seeking to hurt others out of revenge or in order to satisfy our own desires or build ourselves up. That's not us. We are not those people. At least, that's not the us that we are intended to become. At least not the holy mystery that God would have us to become. Yesterday afternoon, again, another mass shooting again. Innocents slaughtered, again, and this time in El Paso. And by the time I woke this morning, again. Dayton, Ohio, again. This is not a statement on where you land on gun policies in our country. This is a statement of slaughter of the innocents. If the mystery of us is still being revealed, I don't want to know anymore. Because there's no mystery in such murderous violence and rage. We are not static beings. We are dynamic beings, and we are changing. And even as we are given the opportunity to grow into the image of God, we are making a decision to grow into the very worst version of just be yourself. We have an epidemic in our society. And what I name it may not be what you name it. I'm not a psychologist. I haven't studied human behavior. When I was first ordained, I remember thinking the equivalent of, poor me, poor me, I'm going to have to change my sermon again. There's been a mass shooting overnight. I can remember thinking that, well, there goes another Sunday where I just can't worship and I have to think about the people in the pews. It seemed for a while that I was drawing the short straw of selfishness when it came to mass shootings. 
And I'm reminded of Pastor Frederick Niemöller's famous speech given on January 6, 1946 to the representatives of a confessing church in Frankfurt. Most of us probably know it, the most famous alteration which begins, first they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And it ends when he writes, then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Well, first they came for Virginia Tech students, and I did not speak out because I was attending seminary at another Virginia school. Then they came for the politicians in Tucson, and I did not speak out because I didn't follow politics. And then they came for the elementary students in Newtown, Connecticut, and I didn't speak out because I didn't have children. Then they came to the movie premiere in Aurora, Colorado. I didn't speak out because I didn't go to late-night movie premieres. Then they came for the Bible scholars at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And I did not speak out. I wasn't black. And then they came. And then they came. And then they came. And I wasn't a Jew. And I wasn't gay. And I wasn't a country music fan. And I didn't like garlic. And I wasn't shopping. And then they came for me when I was in the pulpit. There was no one left to speak out for me. And then they came for you. I grew up in a military family, a family of law enforcement. I followed my father's footsteps. I learned to hunt as a young adult, a target shoot. And what I'm seeing is not just an issue of mental illness that needs thoughts and prayers. I'm seeing racism, I'm seeing hatred, and I'm seeing rage. And I'd be a coward to not call it as I have experienced it. Because the they is not a they. The day is one more angry young white man who is being arrested and taken into custody without incident. Can you imagine what it must be like to live in a community wondering, could something like that ever happen here? Could something like that ever happen in Phoenix? Well, I'll tell you, yes. And on the trajectory we are on, it is just a matter of time. I don't know who we're going to be. We're not static beings. We are dynamic becomings. We're a work in progress, and that scares me to death. And still I'm reminded that I worship a God who is calling gifts and graces out of us that we have not yet imagined. And if we do not trust that that is the truth, if we do not believe in a God who always wins, that love always wins, that with God all things are possible, then we are dead as well. Because my siblings in Christ, if we are serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, then we need to act like it. The letter to the Colossians leads me to believe that there may be some things I can no longer do and call myself a follower of Christ. How very long it can take for someone to become the person who God has created us to be. 
Too often I have forgotten the words that God has written on my heart and on our hearts. We are God's beloved. We are God's beautiful children who have been created with depth and breadth of deep, deep love. And God begs us, take off the masks that are not your own. And God pleads us to dissolve the ego that keeps us from discovering the true selves, our true selves of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, authentic love, true love. God is love. And if God is anything else, I don't want that God because love always wins. Let us pray. Come down, O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear, and kindle it, thy holy flame bestowing. Amen.